We had our 40th shooting death this year last night. It's a story of a guy who is at uh, driving along on Weston Road, I believe, in the Jane Finch area. Call came in after 9 o'clock, and he was uh, driving on Weston Road when another car pulled up beside him, and someone from inside shot him. His car then crashed into a tree, and he was taken to hospital with life-threatening injuries where he later died. Uh, you know, people are talking about how out of hand this is. Last year, we were at 66 at this time, if that gives you any uh, pause for relief. I doubt it. But, um, you know, the police are in full swing with this Project Community Space, which launched on Monday. And they're going to put more police in the at-risk neighborhoods. But there is a story that was covered um, by CTV. Toronto police have identified about 100 street gangs in the city. There's an inspector with this services and integrated handgun and and uh, task gun and gang task force who is by the name of Inspector Joe Matthews. He said, you know, there is a rise in the use of devices that modify semi-automatic guns to make them automatic. And he actually says that this is uh, this has all the hallmarks of a street gang turf war here to talk about it david perry who is our ceo investig of uh he's the ceo of investigative solutions network he is our 640 toronto law enforcement analyst welcome to the show david good to have you on good morning good to be here so um this inspector says that the all of the the recent violence has a, a street gang turf war all the hallmarks of it do you agree he would be right on point. Uh, we've got a turf war going on, not just in Toronto, but in the GTA and other major cities that we've never seen here in Canada before. And uh, it, if we allow this to continue, um, we're going to be just like some of the larger American cities where they are completely taken over by gangs and the streets are completely unsafe. David, give us an idea of what these hallmarks are. Well, you know, it's it's the number of handguns that are being seized every day. You know, sometimes, and, and I, I understand the psychology behind this, but sometimes we we laud the work that the police are doing in, in the number of guns that they're taking off the streets every day. And, of course, we should. That's good work. It's dangerous work. It's very high risk. But on the other hand, the, the piece that we don't talk about is how frightening it is that with limited resources, with limited police powers, they're still taking this number of guns off the streets. So just imagine how many we're missing and how many are actually out there. And I'd like to put it in perspective for you, Kelly. I know that uh, I joined a very long time ago, but in the 1980s, if we ever seized a handgun off the street, everybody came in to have a look at it because the only other handguns we ever saw there were ours in the hands of the police legitimately. It was such a rare occasion. And, you know, flip into the 90s, still fairly rare. Getting into the late 90s and into the 2000s, it's an everyday occurrence, and it's frightening what's going on. Let's talk about the handguns. Were you seeing modifications to handguns back then, or were they? did they look like they were legally procured and then stolen? Um, that's a multiple-layered multiple question. So, first of all, they're all illegal because they're in the hands of gang members who right. don't have the right to have them. And even if they did, they're carrying them against any kind of restriction that, that by law, we, we all have to follow if we have a handgun. Modifications is fairly new. Um, you know, we see it from time to time, but I think we're seeing it on a much higher level. I only have to watch the news and, and see the cars riddled with gunfire. There either has to be five people firing at the same time with the same weapon, or you've got somebody that's got something that has been converted into automatic, and that's when it gets really scary. They use illegal clips, illegal sizes of uh, you know, devices to carry, carry the ammunition in, and, and when they let go, there's no control. Uh, especially in a handgun, there's no control. 
So if they let off a burst of 20 bullets, God knows where those bullets are going to go. And that's when innocent people start getting struck as well. When you talk about these modified um, handguns to make them um, more like a semi-automatic uh, weapon, are you mod- is there something you can do to the gun to modify it, or are you taking you know um, something that already exists and adding it to the gun? It depends on the weapon. Sometimes it's an additional piece, and other times it's removing and modifying a piece that's in the gun, that piece that actually makes the gun uh, fire in a way that you have to squeeze the trigger every time you want to discharge it. And uh, the modifications are typically to defeat that device, and one squeeze of the trigger will have it uh, go off automatically. And, and in a very short burst, a matter of a, a split second, whatever clip size you has has been discharged and is empty. When I heard that this inspector, Inspector Matthews, said that Toronto police have identified 100 street gangs in the city, I thought, boy, I must be seriously naive. Uh, because I would imagine, you know, when I think about the guns and gangs, I was picturing, you know, 8 to 12 active street gangs, you know, 100 street gangs. Does that seem does that seem even plausible to you? I think it's a modest estimation. Wow. 100, 100 doesn't even surprise me because they typically are neighborhood gangs, and quite often they could be confined to one particular apartment unit. There's a gang, and if there's a cul-de-sac that has four or five, you could have six, seven, eight gangs all fighting over the turf, all trying to get the drug trade and take control of, of that particular neighborhood. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, they're everywhere. Unfortunately, as a former police officer, you never shut it off. I see them everywhere I go. You do. What's the hallmark? How do you know? I mean, are you recognizing people that you knew had gang associations, or is there something that um, gives you tips you off? It's a behavior-based uh, recognition that you, when you see somebody that's carrying a handgun, it's it's the way they walk. It's the way their hand goes to that weapon on a regular basis to make sure it doesn't fall down, typically in their waistband. Mm-hmm. They're always tugging and pulling at it. It's the behavior, and you see them everywhere. And, and sometimes so much so that, you know, even for me, my heart starts to pound, and I just want to get away from whatever area I'm in. Yeah, what should we look for? Because public areas. Yeah, when I heard you say that, I'm thinking, okay, well, then what am I looking for? Should we be aware of people that are, you know, grabbing at and fiddling with their, their waistband? Because, you know, if I'm in a mall and I see that, I'd like to get it out of the area of that person. Yeah, for trained people, you can pick it up. It's not something we could learn just in a short conversation, but police officers are trained to recognize the signs of people that are, you know, dealing with drugs. And if they're dealing with drugs, there's a high likelihood that they're carrying a firearm. And that's a big change again. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a big change since the uh, carding was stopped and since street investigations were banned. The gangs know they can carry with impunity, so they do. And, And I see them. I see them all the time. And you know, I'd bet an awful lot of money. You and I could go for a drive some night, and I could go into a, not even a gang area, but if I saw somebody that I believed was carrying a gun, and I would articulate to you the reasons I think they're carrying a gun, I would bet a fair bit of money if the police stopped them that I would be right. And every officer knows this, and every officer knows when they come across a gang car, you know, filled with men, the quick head turns and the and the jerkiness and the behavior of the people in the car that they probably got a problem, and they're not allowed to do anything about that any longer. That's that's why the guns are so prolific right now. You said that you thought it was a modest number, the hundred uh, number of street gangs at a hundred in the city of Toronto. Police services define a street gang as as what? Well, as a collective group of people with a sole purpose of criminal activity, typically drugs. Is there a number? Uh, human trafficking. I don't think there's a number, but you know, you're not going to call three or four people a gang, right? But people that are, you know, organized and. Uh, 
you know, not just operating within their neighborhood, but dispersing and distributing narcotics throughout the city and the GTA and very, very active and organized. That's that's a gang. And there are plenty of them out there. Way too many. After we are talking with David Perry, who is our 640 Toronto law enforcement analyst, a former police officer, CEO of Investigative Solutions Network, about uh, the the shooting yesterday and the fact that um, a Toronto police inspector has said that there are about 100 street gangs in the city that are you know, active, uh, which the number which you think is is quite low. But I asked you off the top of this interview if um, you think that what's going on with the gun violence has all the hallmarks of street gang turf war. And you said yes. You said they're fighting over parts of neighborhoods and the shootings seem to be happening all over the place. Are they fighting over share of the city as well? Absolutely. And the distribution networks are growing, you know, into small communities where the gangs will actually purposely have people um, living in those small communities to, to get a foothold there as well. And because, uh, you know, everybody talks about guns and gangs and drugs, and you always think of big cities like Toronto, but it's a problem everywhere, and especially the drug component. And the drug component is, for the most part, is controlled by gangs. So they're everywhere. You see them everywhere you go. I've seen them in places where it quite frankly shocks me. Are they you know, buying prote- protection, in your opinion, from family members that have uh, members in gangs, like sort of, you know, paying them so they can afford to do things? And that's that's one of the things that a listener actually reached out to us about and said he he suspected based on some things that he knew that this was going on. That people were were being paid by the gangs. Yeah, that that. Um, that they're buying their silence by, oh, you know... There's uh, no question. That's been going on for for decades. And, you know, even when I used to do the human trafficking component of gangs, you know, they, these guys became heroes in some of their neighborhoods because they, they would drive in with very expensive cars and they're always flashing cash and they had women around them and alcohol and drugs and guns. And so they became the heroes and they would. that's one of the things they they use to lure younger men mm-hmm. age 12 13 14 to, into the gangs by you know this uh, whole persona that this is such a great life and you know this is your way out and this is your way to make it big and and it's just a it's just a cycle that that uh, repeats itself decade after decade it sounds very pablo escobar yes that's actually not a bad description but uh you know, the gang culture has got a strong foothold in our cities, and it's going to take a concentrated effort and an awful lot of public support to, to try and get it managed. We're never going to eradicate it completely, but we certainly have to manage it, and we certainly have to draw a line, and, and that line should have been drawn a long time ago. We're just had enough, and we're not going to we're not going to tolerate it. We're going to give the police the resources they need to combat this. Right, and you, you brought up police resources, so let's turn our attention to Project Community Space, which is launched on Monday and not only aims to um, get out into the communities at risk, but to uh, make them safer for the people that live there. There's a mother of a Toronto teen that said that there was a violent arrest and it's traumatized her son, her 14-year-old boy, uh, she says was assaulted by Toronto police on Monday evening. Uh, they were responding to what looked like um, people loitering and they received you know, complaints about drug use. They said that the youth is known to them. He refused to identify himself and then things turned physical when he tried to run away and a cop has, was seen um, punching him. Put this into context because I think that's what's missing. What's your impression of the police officer's use of force in this situation? Because one of the cops, they have him down on his stomach, punches him. Uh, there's three cops holding him down, punches him three times. 
Yeah, I saw the video, and I didn't see anything in the video that caused me any concern. Um, this was a violent arrest, and the violence was perpetrated by the 14-year-old so-called boy that they were trying to arrest. And this guy was, first thing I noticed in the video, was much bigger and much taller than all three of the officers that was there. The officers were called to this scene. They didn't just roll up and, you know, in the street terms, start harassing kids. They were called because of drug activity. They had evidence of drug activity, a 14-year-old in possession of marijuana and smoking marijuana. He refused to identify himself, which makes him very arrestable. And as soon as the officers went to lay hands on him to arrest him, the way that this could have been controlled and the outcome could have been much better if that 14-year-old boy would have done what he was supposed to do, turn around, put his hands behind his back, he would have been arrested without any use of force whatsoever. But he pushed the officer, he ran, he was tackled, and then he violently struggled, so much so that I heard somebody either taking the video or standing close to it, mm-hmm. yelling at him to calm down. This was not an officer uh, issue. This was the, the perpetrator. I don't care if he's 14 or if he's 40. When the police go to arrest you, do what they say. Put your hands behind your back. They will put gently put handcuffs on you and walk you to a police car. He was the one that made the decisions that led to the use of force that was applied against him. And distractionary blows like I saw in there are common you know, training methods to get people under control. And Kelly, here's the thing. There are so many videos out there today where police are trying to actively make a lawful arrest and crowds gather around and the crowds are filming and yelling and screaming and inciting. The risk to the, the officers during those tense moments is extremely high, that they could be you know, struck by a bottle, they could be attacked mm. from behind, they could be stabbed, they could be shot. It's a very tense situation. They've got to get that guy under control as fast as possible, and if they have to give him a couple of distractionary blows so he'll release and allow his arms to be brought behind his back so he can be handcuffed and taken away, then that's what they should do. So I think people have to learn. this. I don't know, there's this... Uh, this whole phenomenon that some people in our society believe that they they cannot be arrested, no matter what they're actually involved in doing, they cannot be arrested. And their their first and only reaction is to fight, to resist all the way to the car with the crowd, you know, inciting more you know more violence and and yelling police brutality and all that. The reality of this this was a pretty standard arrest, and any any force that was used. There's only one person that brought that force upon themselves, and that's the person that was resisting the arrest. I think it's interesting that you gave us perspective that we don't have, and that is, you know, something that didn't dawn on me. This is a high-risk neighborhood. They already know that um, it's dodgy going to some of these neighborhoods because the relationship between the police and the people that live there is already strained. And if you're trying to take down a member of the community and, and people are crowded around, you would have that in the back of your mind. How safe am I at this point? My back is turned to everything except for this kid. So I appreciate that. By the way, the uh, the 14 year old is charged with possession of marijuana under 18, assaulting an officer and resisting arrest. He's out on bail, and his mother says she's going to lodge a formal complaint. Yeah, that's her right to do so, and that of course will be reviewed and should be reviewed if she lays a complaint. But you know what? I'd say this about a lot of parents out there: <clears throat> their focus should be on the behavior of their children that brought the police to that neighborhood and led to that arrest. That's where the focus should be. What was that 14 year old boy? Doing where he doing where he was and what he was doing, you know, taking drugs and where's the attention to that and the fact that, you know, at least in his mind he thinks that he can assault and run from the police and then resist arrest and and that's okay and our our focus is now going to be on the police officers, our focus should be on that young boy, 
the two boys that were with him and every boy in that neighborhood that thinks they can hang out and, and deal drugs and have their own community call the police. And again, the most important part to hear, Kelly, yeah. the police were called. Yeah, by somebody in the community. By somebody in the community. So they came, they are the duty-bound to reply and respond to that call, and the response was a simple, I think if he would have just simply identified himself, they probably would have written him a criminal summons. He mm-hmm. wouldn't even have been formally arrested. But when he refused to identify himself, that's the that's the trigger for arrest. If you don't want to identify yourself, well, you're under arrest, and we'll figure the rest of it later. When you get violent and resist and... The rest unfolded quite naturally the way it would. And the police are not the punching bags for the community. They have a right to protect themselves, to take people into custody. And if they have to use the force that we saw in this video, I think it's quite appropriate. Well, David, thank you so much for bringing us some uh, clarity on what are some disturbing situations going on in the city of Toronto. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. Cheers. That's David Perry. He is our 640 Toronto law enforcement analyst.